make it through this week do normal people say that and that's life i guess i guess so i don't always remember it being that way or we're just a couple of crazy bastards well that's true maybe that's why people sometimes go you have four kids yeah right welcome welcome to the duke and duchess podcast i'm the duchess I'm the Duke. So we are at episode 27. Episode 27. We are discussing Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear, chapters 127 through 135. Mm, Good stuff. And what are we doing next week? Next up will be chapters 136 through 142. And we are very close to the end of the book. Yeah. Two more episodes and we will be through... The yep. end of Wise Man's Fear. <sighs> so just to recap what we did announce last week, we're going to have two more episodes where we're going to get through the end of this book. We are going to do an episode on the slow regard of silent things. Yep. And then have one final sort of theory palooza wrap up. Do on... some fantasy casting for things we missed. Talk about a few other things like that. Grand conspiracy tinfoil. Right, so we're going to wrap up our discussions on the world of Temerant, and after that, we'll be moving on to our next series. Our next exciting project, which we will announce at the end of this episode. (laughs) And we do have a winner for our contest, so we will be announcing that at the end as well. Yeah, very exciting. It was a fun thing. It It was was, really fun. It really was. So... Oh, I guess spoiler policy. Don't let me don't let me forget that. Right. Um, and we're at the point where the spoiler policy is almost irrelevant, but we're gonna give it out anyway. Because damn it, if we do anything, it's we stick to protocol. So we will not spoil anything through, or excuse me, after chapter one hundred and thirty-five of the Wise Man's Fear. Liz has read these books several times. I have not, so I don't know what's going to be happening. In these next couple of episodes. I don't know how it ends. Right. And so we do not want to spoil that for him. We like seeing his reactions. Yeah, it's fun and stuff. His sometimes wildly inaccurate predictions. That's what makes it fun. <laughs> so last time we were in the amazing world of Ademray. And we had the the trial with the sword tree and we had the Quoth getting a name, a new name, and Quoth getting a new sword, and also Quoth going up for his stone trial, where he ended up in this fight with Carceret, and then he fell down to the ground and said, ow, my knee, he took a dive, and that was where we ended. Right, so last time, uh, Quoth became the Karate Kid. He did, yeah. Carceret tried to sweep the leg. Yeah. <laughs> but he managed to get admitted into the school. I and feel like Carceret managed managed to sweep the leg. I think she did sweep the leg. But, you know, Quoth was not Danny from The Karate Kid. He did not get up and do the crane kick. He was like, fuck that shit. I lied to get in here. I am not a black belt. 
Quilt didn't have to be a hero, and thank goodness for it. But so in this section of chapters that we're going to discuss, Quoth and uh, Penthe discuss reproduction. Yeah, I got some opinions about that. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what you... I think a lot of people can't wait to hear what you thought about that. And he and Veshet finally talk about the Chandrian. And then uh, he says goodbye and leaves Hert and has a run-in with some false troopers where he stands up for the Edamaru. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And... And rescues two girls and returns them home. Yes. And so that is sort of the quick down and dirty summary of what is in this episode. And if you ever wonder why we do that, it's because if you're like us, you can't remember what happened in a given set of chapters. So when we say we end at chapter 135, that doesn't mean anything. So we like to wrap it up, put a little tidy bow on it so you understand what it is that we're going to talk about tonight. So chapter 127 is called Anger. So in chapter 127, Tempe chastises Quoth for not using his sword. He had a big conversation about whether that was the right thing to do or not. And then Penthe takes Quoth off and says, I understand you barbarians have some weird thoughts around sex. They have sex. And then Penthe says, Oh, you poor men. You're so full of anger. It's probably because you can't make babies and don't have anything to leave the world. And that's the end of the chapter. Right. So let's break this down starting at the beginning. Okay. Before we jump into the the more interesting parts of it. Um, I liked how Quoth was sort of able to hold his own in a debate about the Lathani with Shane and Tempe. Because Tempe comes over and right away says, you should have thrown away your sword. That's not of the Lathani. And he says, no, um, it was. And uh, because if Carceret had beaten me and I'd been armed, or if I'd beaten her and I'd been armed, it would have looked like I cheated. And if I had not beaten her and I was armed, crap, I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> Either way, okay, let me make it real simple. <laughs> Tempe says, that was not of L- the Lathani. And Quoth says, yes, it was. And Shane says, you're both right. And then Penthe uh, said, marmalade. <laughs> marmalade, God. Um, so anyway, I just, I picked up more on that interaction that he was, like how quickly he picked up on that and, and is able to have this kind of nuanced conversation with them. Yeah, and I like that it's, the the Lathani is not always about authority. Right. You know, it you can kind of reason and have a conversation about it. Even if you're, you know, as dumb as a sailboat like Tempe, you can still have a conversation with, with somebody about the Lathani. So, right. And I think this conversation sort of briefly introduces the idea of the difference between success and victory. Yeah, which was interesting. And I think that co- is gonna that comes up later in the section that we talk about. So and then there's some doing it. There's a whole lot of doing it. Penthe pulls Quoth aside and says, I understand you barbarians have strange rules around your sexual rituals. Uh, so I have brought you flowers. Are these enough flowers for us to do it now? <laughs> so, you know, Patrick Rothfuss obviously has a pretty uh, pointed commentary here on sexual mores. I, I don't know. The first time I read through it, it was definitely not subtle. I don't know. What was your take here? About the idea that we have of monogamy? Yes. But so, I, I feel it's a pretty uh, ham-fisted, not, I want to say ham-fisted, it's a, he's pretty bluntly going, monogamy is dumb. 
That's interesting. No, because because I agree with you. Like, at least from the perspective of these people, that's what he's saying. Do you feel like he's making a qualitative judgment about monogamy overall through through the example of the ADEM, or is it just is it just you know an interesting set of characteristics that he is exploring through these people. Is he just dabbling in Orientalism and trying to make them different and exploring it just for the sake of it? Just being like, Ooh, look how different they are. Uh, You know, that's an interesting question because I definitely took it as a qualitative judgment on, yeah, look how silly our monog, you know, idea of monogamy is. Um, At the same time, it was interesting for me to go through and kind of look at, okay, like why does that mindset work? in this culture um, and why might not it work in others, you know? And I, I came up with like, well, they're very closed, closed off. So the idea yeah. that the ADEM don't have venereal disease. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes it work. And the fact that they don't believe in fatherhood. So there's no like ownership of yeah. children really. Yeah. And I think that part, and we'll obviously we'll get more into that, but I think that part gives sort of a better explanation for why they have such a different set of sexual mores when, you know, you believe that, that, you know, women are solely responsible for not just child rearing or child bearing, but child having at all child making baby making doing it is what I'm saying. (laughs) When, when you think that, you know, men really play zero part in that at all, then it dramatically changes the family structure. There really isn't a family structure, and you know things are completely different. And you know, so I don't know. That's sort of an interesting thing to play with. I don't. I'm not 100 percent certain that he is making a qualitative judgment, but he certainly could be. It also made me wonder how whether the ADEM are physiologically different, um, because how are they not constantly pregnant? If they're, if they're, well, here's one thing that crosses my mind. If they train the way that they do, then I would, I would imagine that they probably come to sexual maturity at a later date. That's probably, that's a good point. You know, so they probably aren't, you know, the women probably aren't getting their periods till much later, but it does seem strange that a woman of Penthe's age, who's, you know, 20 years old, you know, and is saying that she's had sex 500 times, wouldn't have become pregnant once. That's strange. It's strange. I don't care how hard you train. That's weird. So, yeah, I don't know. And Vichette doesn't mention any children either. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's a good question. But I like your point about him exploring Orientalism, and I know that other people have talked about that as well. Mm-hmm. But I think there is some of that going on here. And it is certainly interesting to view um, a more matriarchal society and really all the implications of what... Because a lot of times, you know, you see in fantasy these matriarchal societies, but there's a lot of patriarchal societies aspects in there too. Yeah. And I think this is just a more carefully thought through version of that. 
yeah, matriarchy. Yeah, and I don't I don't want to rule out that he is making a judgment. Like I I really don't want to rule that out. I don't know enough about you know Patrick Rothfuss personal life to say whether or not he's really starting to make a stance on something, you know? So it, you know, it's hard to say, but I I wouldn't rule that out. Not, not by any stretch of the imagination, but this sort of flies in the face of that to me, because in this chapter we find out, okay, you know, they, they don't have all this petty jealousy. They don't have all this anger. They're, you know, they're this matriarchal society, you know, they seem to be from the outside this self-contained, very stable, you know, very, uh, or really lacking in a, in a great amount of conflict society. And then I find out they don't know where babies come from. And I'm like, that's just dumb. Like, like you can't, you know, it just take, it, it just completely ruins it for me. You know, you, you can't tell me that, they don't know where babies come from. I just lose all respect for the Adem. That That's absurd. Now, I think that some people believe that or have purported that maybe for the Adem, that's true. So maybe there is something different about Adem I, women? I, I, I don't really hold with that theory. I, mm-hmm. I think for everyone in this world to have been human and human as we understand humans, for them just to kind of drop something like that where well, this, this race has a completely different reproductive system. I don't think I'd buy that. Yeah, in a, in a place where we don't really have, like, traditional monsters and we don't have elves and dwarves running around, I mean, what we see in Tamarant is humans. There is a gateway to the Fae where that's a whole kind of different other thing. So, yeah, I would find that very strange. Having said that, that don't really have an explanation of why there aren't a lot more babies running around. Right. So I don't know, maybe there's more to come. You know, maybe. maybe they have their own moon tea that we just, you know, that we just don't know about and hasn't come up. It's possible. And, and, you know, Penthe does say uh, that women inherit are more likely to have children because it's a good place to have children. Yeah. And also the idea that women have uh, babies more in fall, which I was like, what? <laughs> like, uh, you know, I mean, it is, I mean, humans are the only ones, to my knowledge anyway, that don't have sort of like a breeding season. Right. Uh, yeah, I couldn't quite, I was like, what is there, is that true? Like, it's not true in our society. So, or at least not to my knowledge. So, I, so that sort of made me scratch my head. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's interesting. It's interesting. So either way, Quoth shows Penthe some of his slick, fey magic, sex god moves. And uh, she's totes impressed. Oh yeah, <laughs> she likes the thousand. She hands. has she, ha- <laughs> at she least has at least one hundred and fifty places them. for those thousand hands. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> so she says you have a fine, strong anger, which means semen. I think that's one possible translation of that word. No, 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 no. As a man, <laughs> as a human male, I agree. Semen equals. Anger. <laughs> L- listen, no bar fight has ever happened right after somebody ejaculated. You know, I I just haven't done much research in that topic. Find me one. You're gonna have. I'm gonna have to just. I'm gonna bow to your superior knowledge here. No, 
No bar fights right after somebody ejects. It doesn't happen. You know, maybe P. Roth is onto something. Not, at least not in the bars I've been to. <laughs> so the chapter closes with Penthe. People would be slipping all over the floors. Oh, God. <sighs> so the chapter ends with Penthe saying, you are only a man and all you have to offer the world is your anger. So that was just kind of a line that I liked. Yeah, you are an empty branch. When you know when you die, you will leave nothing of any import behind, is what I wrote down. And it's kind of harsh, dude. It is pretty harsh. So, but if you think about it, anger is what drives Quoth to find the name of the wind at the end of the Ooh, name of the wind. That's a good point. You know, so his first sort of embrace of the name of the wind is through anger. And then if you think about it, his second time is kind of a combination of anger and fear when he's with Felurian. So it's not until he was in a Demray that he was able to get rid of that and kind of get over that sort of thing. So I take that statement along with the fact that anger is what caused him to call the name of the wind the first time to be to mean that anger is going to think to be the thing that ultimately defines Quoth and his legacy when he becomes the king killer. Interesting. And I like the definition, the ADEM definition of anger, uh, which is that which makes you want to move and grow and do and make. Yeah, this is this section I found on the first read through, I found a couple of things that I thought were pretty obvious foreshadowing. And then reading back through it again, I found kind of even more. So if I look at this section overall, kind of a lot happens, but not a lot that ties into the main storyline. You know, we have another little kind of adventure off to the side where Quoth does something very Quothy, but it doesn't necessarily relate back to the whole. Very similar to like the end of the, um, I can't remember the name of that damn town where the dragon was, um, Traben. Traben, thank you. So very much like Traben at the end of the last book. You have a lot of these tan these things that don't relate back to the whole, but they do show a lot of character and they really help him grow as a person. But I feel like there was a lot of foreshadowing in this particular section of chapters that we read. And this being the first of it, and anger being something that comes up a lot. Yeah, I picked up on a lot more this this time through as well. Cool. Um, so chapter 128 is called Names. So in chapter 128, Quoth leaves a Demray and also learns a little bit more about the Chandrian. So I thought this chapter would really make your ears perk up, did they? It it, it did. It f- like when I first read through this and Shan says, sit down, here's a story, you're going to hear it. We're only going to tell it to you one time. You know, I'm going, oh, here it comes. There's going to be so much here. It's got another story within a story, you know. And then I was a little disappointed because we do learn something. We learn the what we believe are to be the true names of the Chandrian. But it doesn't necessarily move us any closer to knowing, I don't know, to kind of resolving anything. But we do learn but we do learn a little bit more about in the next chapter, I feel like there was more 
to really enjoy than in this one. Well, let's get into this a little bit. Yeah, um, I do have one observation about the names, and we'll get to that when we kind of come to it. Right. Um, so maybe, Vich- there, maybe there's stuff I missed. Right. Um, well, Vachette and Quoth start off talking about his name, the name he was given by Maglin, which is Maedra, mm-hmm. and he's asking her about it. And she tells him that he shouldn't talk about this name, not even really with her, because deep names like this one have mm-hmm. power and meaning. And when you know a, someone's deep name, you have power over it. And this is something that Quoth knows. And I think it's just interesting that he is now letting Chronicler write this name down. Yeah, that that's like the most interesting part of all this to me. If you think back, it, it kind of goes to the thing I said about the Cathay, where I'm like, should he, should this story be written down? Like, this may not be a good thing to write down, you know? And when you get to the story about his own personal name, which has now come up a couple times in this narrative that he's telling, and then he starts telling the true name of the Chandrian. Now he's only telling it once, but how many times is it going to get read, you know, and then how many people are going to read it out loud and, and potentially invite the Chandrian? Like, well, the, the phrase that jumped out to me, I have two thoughts about that, but the first is that the phrase that jumped out to me is at the end. Well, and I think it's, it's not until the interlude, um, when this comes up, but I'll just put it out there here. Okay, we can treat him as kind of one thing. Yeah. Because Bast is Bast is aghast at the fact that Quoth has said these names. And Quoth kind of says, well, you know, and he explains his reasoning, and we'll get into that in a minute. But then he says, it's good to have them written down. They might be useful for someone someday. Yeah. And it just shows how much he does not give a fuck anymore. He's given up. Well, on- yeah, it, it- <laughs> And it's sort of a, it, it's sort of like you threatening to burn the house down. Like if Kristen Bell doesn't get cast as as Debbie, um, please, Kristen, you, you, for the sake of us all, <laughs> right? It, it's sort of like I'm on the way out. I don't care. It's all going to end badly for for me. So fuck it. We're going to put this stuff at the Cathay out. We're going to put the name of the Chandrian out, and we'll just you know watch the world goddamn burn. Right, and he's he's just sort of given up on the fact, the idea that he's going to do anything about the Chandrian, but maybe somebody will do about it some something about it someday. Well, and the other thing is, and this just crossed my mind with you saying this, is it's very anti for the greater good. Mm, I guess it depends on how you look at it, but I could definitely see it that way. Yeah, I mean, my point being that if you look at a lot of what Quoth does, and we'll talk about it more in this section, and we've talked about it a lot. He tends to behave in a for the greater good sort of way, you know, and it seems to me that putting out their information about the Cathay and the Chandrian's real name seems to not at all be for the greater good. It seems to be a very much a chaotic sort of fuck it. We'll let the chips fall where they may sort of attitude. Like, I, I don't know. I think I disagree with you, but let's okay. kind of go through this piece by piece. Okay. Um, so so first we have... We kind of charged ahead. Yeah, we have Vachette and Quoth talking about deep names versus little names. And Vachette telling Quoth he shouldn't put his, his deep name out there. Mm-hmm. So what I find interesting is that Quoth 
puts himself at risk by putting this out there mm-hmm. more than I think he puts anyone at risk by putting the Chandrians names out there. And they talk about little names like Tempe. And it's interesting that he finds it interesting that Tempe has the same sort of meaning in his language as in Vichette's language. And it just echoes something that Elodin told him, tells him at some point, I think, about small names. People's names are small words, have meanings too, um, not the, not as much as deep names. So, and this is where she tells him that his name, Maedra, means flame, thunder, and broken tree. Yep. But we don't get to find out why she was surprised by it. No, she she was very resolute that she would not talk about that. Then we have the Chandrian story. So Shane sits him down and tells him in, in a very formal ritualistic way, I'm going to tell you this story. Uh, you cannot ask any questions or talk about it until you've slept a thousand nights and traveled a thousand miles. And then and we she, learn in the, in the interlude why we believe that to be important. Exactly. And it's interesting. And she goes on to tell the story of a people who were not the Adem, 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 but who became them. Um, they fought well, as well as the Adem, and they sang songs of great power. Oh, they, I mi- you know what? I missed that. Look at you. Yeah. They had a great empire that's long gone, and the land and sky have changed since then. But there were seven cities in one city, and the one city that's remembered is Tyrrheniel. Tyrrheniel, yep. So this goes back to the story that Scarpy told. So yeah, so they're saying that they were the the original people who fought the creation war. Right. So the fact that this story, for, for me, has fewer details, isn't embellished and doesn't have a lot of details added. Yeah, I think, I think that's a fair point because realistically something that happened 4,000 years ago, how are you going to have dialogue for it? Exactly. So we don't have, oh, and this, this person said, and this is what he thought, you know, but to me that says, this is a true story. This is probably as close to the truth because she talks about how this story has been passed down through the changing of the land, through the changing of the sky, through the wars, they've remembered them all. Well, um, and if quote sword, if, his ata is is it all true then that means that they were practicing this this idea since the creation war practice this practice was in place which is another piece of evidence to say this is probably true right so in the story uh six of the cities forgot the lathani and they let the enemy talk them into betrayal and they they their names are forgotten but seven names are remembered, the name of the enemy and the six who follow them. And these names have been carried through the crumbling of empires, through the broken land and changing sky. And so we get this idea that these are the really for real names of the Chandrian. You know, as we talk about it, I'm I'm getting more into it. And I kind of forgot, you know, because I took my notes a couple days ago, I kind of forgot you know, some of this until we started kind of reading it and talking about it again. But whose name you don't hear, you don't hear the name Selatos. You don't hear the name Telu. You don't hear, you know, Ordal and and Don. You don't hear any of those names. And I've been kind of wondering over the last couple of weeks, 
is it conceivable that the Amir are a creation of the Chandrian? That they never really existed? That the the idea of like the angels and the, you know, and Telu and all of that is not actually real, but something that has been ascribed after the fact. And that the, you know, the Amir, not the order Amir, but like the actual Amir never really existed. I mean, I'm not going to say it's outside the realm of possibility, but I wouldn't take them not being in this story as evidence of that because the sense that I get is that the Adem have held on to this small scrap of the truth. Um, and the story ends right there. And it's not even really a story. It's just there were these cities, they fell, their names were forgotten. These are the names of the people we remember. That's it. Yeah, correct. Yeah, you know, true. it's not it's not even really any kind of narrative. That's true. Um, but we just do know there was a cataclysmic cr- conflict, a creation war. The land changed, the sky changed. What I find interesting about that mm-hmm. is if you look at a Demray on the map, it's on one side of the Stormwall Mountains. Yeah. And we know that Quoth mentioned earlier wanting to cross the Stormwall Mountains and visit the witch women of Tall, who are known to be singers of magic. They mm. sing magic songs. Mm. So it's some kind of music magic. So if the original people of Terennial who became the Adam were both great fighters and singers of powerful songs. Is it possible they split like the mountains split them down the middle and half of the people retained this, the, the, the magic music part of their powers and half of them retained the fighting prowess. Mm, could be, could very well be. I just yeah. think that might be an interesting yeah. possibility. Yeah. And I don't want to get too tinfoily on the whole Amir Chandrian thing. It's just, it's been crossing my mind that, wouldn't it be a bitch if at the end of all this, the Amir and the Chandrian were really one? Like they really, there was some sort of like false stories, false narrative that was propped up. I tend to think that's way too tinfoil. I don't have enough evidence for that, but but I'm just sort of like. I mean, sc- here's my problem with that things. theory: yeah. mm-hmm. is that. Quoth's first person remembrance of meeting the Chandrian, they were chased off by something. Oh, yeah, that's right. And and <laughs> Haliak says to um, Cinder, who protects you from the Amir? Yeah, true. Yeah, good so point. So that would have to be a wrong memory for that to be true. Well, the other, the other thing, too, there's a there's a couple of, like, the, the other thing, too, is that when he is, when he almost dies in Tarbian, I feel like that kind of hallucination that he had right before he died, I feel like was a true thing. And that was one of the Amir because it matches up very closely to the description of one of the Amir. So I, so I'm with you. I think, I think, yeah, I was just, just pissing in the wind. I love it when you piss in the wind. I don't know, man. It's been a long day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about the names. Yes. Do you think we can say them once and not bring them down upon us? I don't know, baby. It's, I mean... If you guys don't hear from us next week. Well, just, you know, when you play it, keep earphones on. That's all I'm saying. So, listen. Not until you've slept a thousand nights. (laughs) Or walked a thousand miles. Can you all talk about this again, okay? Fair enough. (laughs) So, we've got Cyphus, 
who yes. bear. So it's interesting that each one, like we speculated before, that maybe each Chandrian has one sign. Well, and that's true. This sort of does kind of confirm that as well. Yeah. Right. And that goes back to the first book where Quill's parents were speculating about why there are different signs associated with the Chandrian. And his mother, I think, speculated that, well, maybe each one has its own sign. So depending on who, which of the Chandrian was there, that's the sign you would see. Yep. So we have Cyphus bearing the blue flame, Stercus in thrall of iron, Ferula chill and dark of eye usnea i have not practiced saying these at all <laughs> lives in nothing but decay gray delkenti never speaks pale alenta brings the light and alaxel who is um Haliax. so obviously one of these names we've seen before back in book one when quill's parents are killed and um he uh, Haliax is speaking harshly to Cinder, and he calls him by his name, Ferula. What? Yeah, yeah. So um, because I went back and I searched specific, so it's it's one letter off, I believe. Oh, so that's why I didn't find it. Okay, but if you go back and look in that section of the book when Cinder comes over and he's taunting him, and Haliax stands up and gets his attention and. Cinder's kind of talking back a little. He says his name. He says Ferula. And Cinder, like, you know, like, is has a physical reaction oh, so, to it. So then Quoth knowing... Wait a minute. So Quoth knowing these names could be super powerful. Oh, yeah. Man, I am really tired. I am having a hard time putting basic <laughs> shit together. It's okay. So we went to the Renaissance Festival today and walked our asses off while trying to keep four kids in line. And then we got the bright idea, let's all give them wooden swords right when we get there. Nothing bad could happen. Nothing bad can happen. They won't hit passersby with their wooden swords. No. Smack babies in strollers as they wander by. They won't get in a sword fight in a line to buy frozen bananas. So I'm a little exhausted. You got you to bear with my lack of putting hey, shit together they weaponized tonight. our kids, okay? <laughs> they got what they asked for. <laughs> All right, fair enough. So yeah, I'm just putting I'm just putting that together. Okay, I got a, a lot of strands running around in the old duder's head right now. Um, <laughs> so what was Ferula's sign again? He's chill and dark of eye. Hmm. So I guess cold. Okay. For some reason, the first couple of times I the first couple of times I read it, I thought that he was associated with the blue flame until I read it yeah. more carefully, and then when I really looked for it, the time of uh, the the scene with the bandits camp, I was like, oh wait, it's the fire wasn't blue, so that was him, but it was described I think as being cold. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, plus they said they can hide their signs anyway, but. Uh, yeah, I read through these and I took, because I latched onto the blue flame, I took Cinder as being Cyphus. Right, no. And then I felt as though that was confirmed when, but I'm but I'm with you, this, what you're saying makes, makes way, way more sense. So what I did is I searched for all the names, apparently with all the exact spellings and did not find that reference that you found, but I did find 
a reference not to Cyphus, but to Skyphus. Hmm, lay it on me. So in the section when they're in the Eld and they're telling stories at night, Martin begins to tell a story about Taberlin the Great fighting an e- another evil wizard, and the evil wizard was Skyphus. And he imp- and one letter off, just slap an S in front of it. And, you know, this is a handful of days before they went to and ended up having that fight with the bandits. So he's saying the name Skyphus over and over and over again. And I thought, hmm, is it close enough? Did Martin inadvertently tip Cinder off? But if you think about it, there's a huge amount of time. It's like several days between when that story is told and when they run into the bandit person. Plus it still doesn't make sense to me that like it, it, he wouldn't have come there because Martin called his name because they were like organized and he had clearly been there and a part of them for a long time. Right. So that doesn't necessarily make sense, but, but that was the only sort of reference I found. And I thought, well, you know, this Skyphus, you know, maybe is who Cinder was prior to him becoming one of the Chandrian. But then I thought, no, that doesn't make sense. And whoever this Chandrian is, I don't think that's the case. Because Taberlin the Great, being, you know, who knew the name of all things, had to have happened after the Creation War, which meant this person would have already been a Chandrian. So if it's anything at all, if it's meant to be anything at all, it's meant to be a red herring. It's entirely possible. But I think we can agree that Ferula is Cinder. Absolutely. You've you've educated me. Thank you, sweetie. So chapter 129 is called um, Interlude, Den of Whispering. So this is where Bass loses his mind and says, you can't speak those names. That's pretty much the summary. Right. There's more to it than that, obviously. Right. But here is where we get into the power of the names. And Bass is like, you you realize when you say their true names, he's like, we all learn this as children as Faye. When you say their true names, you call attention to yourself. And saying their names is gonna ca- is going to c- cause them to be able to find you, and that's where Quoth begins to say, "Yeah, the, I suspect that's how they found my family and killed them all." Yes, and now that kind of all falls into place for the reader because yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense, and uh, so I did not give this section. I didn't give these chapters nearly enough credit. Now that we're talking about it, I'm. I'm picking I'm picking up on more of this. But yeah, it sort of does wrap up that mystery. I mean, we kind of suspected that's what was going on, something along those lines, but this puts a lot more one, it confirms it, and two, it puts a lot more detail to it. To say they were researching, they found one or two of their true names, and because they decided to practice them and sing them over and over again, that's where they came from. It also sort of explains why when people sing the Chandrian song over and over again the Chandrian don't pop up and kill everybody. Right. Because that's not their names. That's right. not their true names. So the uh, the question that I had about that is, why did they show up in Traben? Well. Maybe it had nothing to do with names. 
Indeed. Um, it may be that names aren't the only thing. Could be. And it may be that, um, you know, possibly even more damaging to them would be a, a picture of them. And the pot we know had... It's physical evidence. Physical evidence. Yeah. Um, it also may have had the names printed on it. It's We don't we don't have the full picture there. Yeah, that thought crossed my mind too. But obviously that was important enough that multiple Chandrian showed up. Or I, there's an alternate theory too. Uh, the alternate theory is that Master Ash was there, and he knows these names, and he d- and he called them on purpose. Oh, that's a good theory. I, I, I don't. I mean, I do. I do think that Master Ash is wrapped up with a Chandrian. Oh, I absolutely agree, one hundred percent. So it's um, and and again, I think we need to address why Quoth is okay putting this stuff out there now. Yeah, I don't have an answer. I mean, I feel like he's just resigned. I think he is. And he also addresses it a bit in this chapter where he says, you know, I know the names are dangerous. That's why I haven't, I've been avoiding them until now. However, saying them once isn't going to hurt anything. And with everything going on in the world, the old stories are being told more and more. So these names are getting, he calls it a slow den of whispering across across the whole country yeah and it again it's another one of these so we're coming up to the end of the second book and i still don't know why those stupid spider things came out of nowhere and i still don't know what who the penitent king is and i still don't know why there's whisperings of the old names and that is very frustrating it's very frustrating which again it's okay as long as it gets paid off or, you know, we get kind of answers to those things. But right now, it's another sort of piece, so another sort of reminder of saying, hey, here's another thing that we don't know that you could easily tell us about. Well, and when you think about where we are in terms of him telling his story, all of those questions are not going to be answered till the end of the story. Yeah. Because it's his killing of the of the king and that's going to be at the climax. That's what yeah. caused him to go into hiding. So well, and, and there's going to be some. There's going to be something that happens in the present. I definitely agree with you. If he puts it all out there in the interlude now, then you kind of know the end of the flashback story. Mm, it could be. Yeah, that could be true. Yeah. So chapter one hundred and thirty is called "Wine and Water." So there's hold on before we before oh, we go on. Yes. There's one other thing that I I noticed in chapter one hundred and twenty nine. So. When Quoth is going, oh, come on, we know this is going to end in tears, you know, and he's doing his typical moo is me right. sort of lump on a log thing. And Bass looks over at Chronicler and that, come on, man, come on. Well, this time Quoth picks up on it. So he's starting to get hip to what's going on between the two of them. So I, I expect that that will come about later. I wouldn't be surprised if Quoth knew the whole time. That could very well be. Yeah. So chapter 130 is called Wine and Water. So in this one, Quoth leaves. (laughs) He does, and he runs into a troop that is not a troop. That is not a troop, correct. Yep. So one of the things that I... I felt like was interesting is that towards the beginning of the chapter, you know, when he's explaining to Shan uh, why he's going to leave, he says, time I collected my reward for a job well done and delivered an earnest and belated apology. 
This is where the normal me would say, there's no way that when he gets to the mayor, the mayor isn't going to have him arrested. So I'm going against my judgment, which has thus far been wrong about the mayor, and saying my prediction is nothing out of the ordinary is going to happen with the mayor. I like it. No, it's wrong. You're like uh, getting really convoluted over here. Ah, I, I can't even see where the, the twistings and turnings of your mind are taking you. <laughs> I'm just going against my, my instinct is to say there's something going on with a fucking mayor. And when he gets back to town, he is going to get fucking locked up. Like, so, you know, he wanted, he sent him off here to get him killed. And then the place he sent him to, the bandits he sent him to kill, were ruled by a fucking Chandrian. Help, my tropes are subverting my other tropes. I, I'm s- <laughs> I don't know what to do. Exactly. So now I'm, but every time I predict that something crazy like that's going to happen with the mayor, it's like, hey, thank you, know, like, like the lackless thing. I was like, well, that's never going to work. Well, no, it pretty much fucking worked exactly like I said. You know, like every time I thought the mayor was going to end up, you know, throwing him in a, in a, in a, in a gibbet and put him on the East wall, nothing like that happened. So I'm going to make my prediction now that he's going to return the gold and the mayor is going to be forever in his debt. Okay. As much as it pains me to say that. <laughs> So let's talk about chapter 130. Let's do that. <laughs> Wine and water. Um, so Quoth leaves Ademaray. And I was surprised when it, it mentions that he's only been there for two months. Yeah, it seemed like longer. It seemed like longer. But he leaves Ademaray and he's slowly making himself back to the mayor. And he runs across a troop. And he's really excited because these these wagons are marked in a certain way, and he knows that these are real Edamaru. But very quickly, he realizes that they are not Edamaru. And if you go back and kind of read the chapter a few times, you can pick up on yeah. the clues because it's interesting. You know, he picks up on clues that they are not real Edamaru. And the last is that they bring out these girls that they have kidnapped. Yeah, and that's the point. Like, I. So when. So what happens is, you know, he comes to the camp. The first sort of inkling that something's not right is that when he announces himself, they instantly draw swords and point them at him, which, based on what we've seen from the Edamaru, that's not how they welcome travelers on the road. The second thing we see is they make a couple references to stealing things from, right. from the town. You know, when I'm like, this does not seem like... The, my thought was through these two events was these this is not the the Edamaru we've seen i don't know maybe the maybe this is just a bad group of Edamaru. <laughs> like maybe these you know or maybe they've come on some really hard times and that's what quoth is going to find out you know i wasn't thinking that they wouldn't be Edamaru. but the third is when they bring the girls out now at this point quoth has already realized right but we as a reader or i as a reader had not realized when they bring the girls out, I'm like, okay, the, these people are not Edamaru. And they weren't. And what I noticed, too, is I think Quoth um, goes through and at one point is kind of testing them. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. By asking them to play a song that any Edema 
they they ask what they can play for him. And he says, can you play Piper Wit? And they say, I don't know that one. He's like, well, that's a song every Edema should know. Yeah, he says, I'll teach it to you. It's a song every one of us should know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's him saying, if you were Edema Rue, you would know this song. And I, you know, kind of going back and and when you read the chapter after you know the ending, it's interesting to look at his dialogue with them. Yes. Yep. And and look at what he what he says. So he they try to talk him into staying with the troop because he's you know hella good on the old loot. He finally agrees. He agrees to stay with the troop until no one objects to his leaving. Yes. <laughs> Which right away you know even the first time through you're like really like you're just gonna kind of forget about all your other stuff. Yeah but, yeah. But he says he's going to ask for three things, and he says all of this before he sees the girls. So you know that he's already he, he picked already up knows. on it. Well, he's also. You don't find this out till later, but he's already poisoned them too. Right. So at this point, he's gone over to where they're cooking the talk to the lady making the stew. And this is my favorite line. And uh, what? So he so he goes over and talks to her, which is where he ends up dropping the poison in the stew. Right. And then he get he gets a bite of it from her first before Mm -hmm. it's poisoned. And he says, "Anyone who does not enjoy this fine stew." is hardly one of the Rue, in my opinion. Oh, I didn't even catch that. See, and they're not going to enjoy it. That's amazing. Because <laughs> they're uh, going to be barfing up their lungs. <laughs> I didn't even pick up on that. Well done. I did notice that after Tim goes off, like Tim staggers off and vomits, and when he comes back, Quill says, why don't you drink some ale I, to settle your stomach? <laughs> yeah. I didn't pick up on that the first time, but the second time... I was like, oh, shit, he poisoned the ale, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, once you get as much of that in you as possible. Right. Yeah. And so then he, he agrees. He makes this deal that he's going to stay with the troop until no one objects to him leaving. And he says, I swear on my mother's milk, none of you will ever make a better deal than the one you made with me tonight. And they won't. And they won't. <laughs> they won't. It's true. Yeah, I wrote some of those down, too. Yeah, that was fun. You know, what happens next in the next couple of chapters is is pretty interesting. But, I mean, these are some horrible people. I think it's important that, I mean, we say that because, you know, I have some opinions about what Quill does to them. But these are some awful, awful people. And it's astonishing to me that they act as though abducting, raping, and torturing two young girls is the most natural thing in the world to the point where they don't object. They don't have the common sense to hold it back from quoth, but it's, that was my initial thought was like, these people are just that evil. Like that it doesn't even cross their mind that what they're doing is wrong. And then I realized later, no, they think that, this is what the Edamaru do. And it's just their racism that they're not holding it back from him because they think he will react normally to it because this is what they think the Edamaru do. They're still evil, by the way. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting to see the process that Quoth goes through. You know, when he sees this, he is... He doesn't hesitate at all. He takes... The two girls, he asks for them to be brought to his tent. He gives them a countertoxin, which knocks them out. And then I just love the scene where he just sits there 
with Kesara across his this knees. This is in episode one or chapter one, chapter one hundred thirty-one, which is called "Black by Moonlight," and he just stokes that fire and he just sits there and thinks about it. And uh, then he gets up and he and it's I think it's significant that you know there was a big deal made about what is he going to go out into the world and do with this sword with this training. Yes, and he kills all of them, and there was a lot of concern. Um, by the ADEM about his enjoyment of fighting. But he does say here, he goes out, he kills them all, but there was no honor to it and no glory. So I think that's significant. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So the last thing that I had for this is that, you know, he goes through, he hunts them all down. He doesn't enjoy it, but he doesn't also does not hesitate that this is what needs to be done. And he does get a gut wound. Yeah. And um, he says he knows that a skilled physiker would make a difference with a gut wound, but that he might as well wish for a piece of the moon as hope that he'll find one. Yeah, another another reference to the moon. So chapter 132. It's called The Broken Circle. Mm-hmm. And that is where he wakes up the next morning and we realize later realizes that he he does not have a serious gut wound. He has kind of a scratch and he proceeds to brand all of the fake Edamaru so that anybody who would stumble across them would know that they're not of the Edamaru. Right. And he takes some time to be able to explain to Kryn so that we yep. also understand yeah. how he knew they were not troopers. And he gets an explanation from Aleg about how he, how they have these wagons how yeah. do they know the signs? And he finds out that Aleg was sort of adopted into the Rue. And when they were killed, he took over the wagons and he got these kind of bandits together. And they just went on thinking, doing what they thought the Edamaru did. Um, and and Kvothe is still furious. And yeah. he ends up leaving Aleg there with a gut wound. Yeah, um, that was, and, and that, was, that was the part that I was, I was like, I don't know about that, man. Um it's certainly not that big of a deal. The guy's going to die anyway. But, you know, he left him with a gut wound and he gave him water to drink, knowing it would prolong it and make it more torturous. And I was like, I don't know if that, like, I, you know, I don't know about that. But anyway, he does, you know, in this instance, he takes out these awful people and he does something, you know, that's kind of a for the greater good sort of thing, but it's also sort of a vengeance thing. Right. And it's very interesting, this topic of vengeance, because that gets brought up in the next one of the future chapters mm -hmm. as well. And Quoth, we know a big part of his character is shaped by not only being Edamaru, but by how the world treats Edamaru. Yeah. And to then see this troop of bandits who, in his mind, are these are the types of people that are responsible for the way that his family has been treated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. People like this who go around masquerading as rude to gain people's trust and then turn around and steal and rape and murder. Yeah. These are the types of people that have caused and really brought all of that down on his people. Yeah, absolutely. So to me, his extreme reaction is even more justified by that. No, I think it is justified, especially when you realize that, you know, as he tells Kryn, it's not, I didn't do this because of what they did to you, although that's a part of it. I did that this because they killed my family and then pretended to be my family 
and because they did this to you. You know, yeah. yeah, these are clearly some bad people. So I don't have a problem with him dispatching them. And I'm glad that they really sort of spelled out, you know, how much the women were a part of it. You know, because if they had if if that had not been seen in the in the in the narrative, right. you know, I might have probably had a little bit more questions about why he did that. Right. But they they make it pretty clear that the women are just as much as involved. Right. Uh, you know, and just as evil as all the men. So off with all of them. And I like that this is not just done and moved on with. There are a few chapters of Quoth processing this, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but yeah. it definitely gets, he doesn't just walk away from this okay, but he does walk away and and drop a really great line. <laughs> he's, as he's walking away, he turns around to the line of bodies and says, does anyone object to my leaving the troop? strangely strangely no one objected no one objects there was one other thing that i thought though in this chapter so he goes this chapter is where he is branding them so he takes a horseshoe and he bends it and turns it into a broken circle so he can represent that these people are not of the adamaru he wants anybody who finds them to know that these were not adamaru there's really only one problem with that though which is that the only like he wants to send this message to everybody the only people who are going to know what it means are Edamaru. Right. Like, I mean, yeah. But, you know. What, what are you going to do? What, I mean, he's going he's gonna to give this guy a gut wound and then torture him by branding him and then leave him a thing of water. You know, I, I think, you know, it would have been, I would have felt better if he just killed the guy outright, but I'm not going to lose sleep over these guys. No, I mean, I think that he does the branding more for himself. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I think you're right. Well, and it, it for us, it demonstrates more about what this is really about. Right, and so... Because he could have... Re- if it was about rescuing these these girls, he could have rescued the girls without killing everybody. Right, but no, I think he, he also needed to kill these people or they were just going to keep doing what they were going to be doing. Well, uh, yeah, agreed. Agreed. And and it's also about justice for what has happened to his family. About what has historically plagued the Edamaru. About the reasons why people think they steal off with babies in the middle of the night and all those other crazy things that they think. So the next three chapters um, are really kind of addressing the aftermath of what went on here. So I would say the next two are, are kind of more about the emotional aftermath of the dreams that he has and uh, Crin and L kind of coming around and going through that sort of a, emotional experience. And the last chapter is about what happens when they get the Levenshire. Right. But that's still about him processing yeah, because he doesn't really process it until he's sitting down. C- correct. Agreed. So say it. Marmalade. No, you're right, Liz. You're right, Liz. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're welcome. So chapter 133 is called Dreams. I walked too far to be to be hungry today. No, I don't but, have it in me. No, but so listen. <laughs> oh, I'm not dis- I'm not disagreeing with you. <laughs> what I just love about Patrick Rothfuss's writing is his ability to write things like this. You know, kind of looking back at 
when Quoth lost his family and the way that he was able to write such a realistic depiction of reaction to extreme trauma. Yeah. And he does that again here and he does it over these three chapters in a really masterful way. So I just like to point that out and address that. You know, this is not just a typical fantasy sequence where he rides in, he kills some bad. I mean, he, now he's killed bandits before, but not True. up close with a knife like this. Yeah. You know, so he doesn't just ride in and kill the bad guys and throw the girls up on his horse and ride off and he, everything is fine. And yeah. everything is fine. He really looks at how does that affect a person? And so first off, in the beginning of this chapter, he points out that the girls don't want to ride the horses. Yes. And what a subtle and and masterful way to depict just this brutal reality of the assault that these girls have. Yeah, without having to... Go into gory detail. Correct. But just that, okay, they can't ride the horses for a couple of days. Yeah. You know, and you just don't see that. I did, that was just so well done. And Quoth, um, well, we have a, a flashback well, to... Let, um, let's compare what George R. R. Martin would have done. Oh, let's not. I mean, let's let's not actually do it, right? But let's think, but just in, think our, in your mind. Think for in your a minds minute. how George R. R. Martin would have right. addressed that little issue, right? Not so subtle. No. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a, a then we go to a flashback of him talking with Fichette about the difference between success and winning, and her saying, "Without the Lathani, there is no success." And so he's starting to wrestle with the idea of what did I just do? He's so the anger is gone and he's Ellie. He's got this Ellie who's in shock. He's trying to bring her out of it and make sure she eats. But he's also kind of going into a bit of shock himself. Well, and an exhaustion Mm -hmm. on top of it. So it's all kind of hitting him. And I thought it was interesting in talking about Ellie and Kryn asks, um, do you think she's going to be okay? And he says, I think she will. The young heal quickly. And then he kind of realizes that she's about his age, but he feels much, much older. Which is a a common thing we see with him. Right. So chapter 134 is called The Road to Levenshire. And again, it's just Just more bad dreams is how it begins. And so we see Quoth really um, stepping up and trying to bring Ellie out of her shock and dealing with the trauma of his own, remembering what he did to the troopers. He's really struggling. He's really struggling. He's really struggling. And then one night when he's sleeping outside of the door of the tent, he wakes up and Ellie has crawled out and she's just clinging to him, crying and, and screaming in her, in her nightmare. And uh, then he's over it. Yep. And he's like, and you know what? I stopped having dreams at that point. And he says, sometimes I think of Alec and I smile. Yeah, because I think that kind of puts a cap on it that says, what did you do that for? Like, what did you do that traumatic, awful thing for? Right. And we can look back and we can say, yes, it was about revenge. Yes, it was about the misinterpret or the, the racism against the Edamaru. It was about those things. But it was also very much about the very real, very tangible person who was really getting tortured right here with you. Mm-hmm. You know, and that that puts a certain finality on it where if you're wrestling, you know, like I did a little bit with, okay, was it was that the right thing to do with Aleg? 
you know, did he have to butcher them all to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish? If you're wrestling with that, well, that kind of puts an end to it right there for me. Do you have anything else for this chapter? So I I do have one thing for this chapter. So the way this chapter ends is with Quoth literally saying, not all men. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I saw that too. He does, that is literally how the chapter ends, which, you know, it was written in 2011 and the, Huge. I, I mean, that was before the not all men, the not meme. all men thing happened. So let's just give P. Roth a little quote, oh, a, a little uh, credit here. Oh, what happens when you write those words and then three years later it becomes a huge internet meme? Right. So, but he did. He did, for the record, say ended with not all men. I wonder if that's one of the minor changes that happened in the tenth anniversary edition, uh, which I we don't have yet. Ah, uh, maybe we need it. Maybe. That's funny. The 20th anniversary edition, maybe he should look into that. For sure. If he hasn't made <laughs> that change. take out that line. That's... Maybe he'll listen to this podcast and he'll be like, damn, <laughs> I did end it that way, didn't I? <laughs> I have a feeling he knows how it ended. Mm-hmm. So, but it did cause me to look up the... I was like, wait a minute, when was this book written? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I read that, I had to go, because I don't know, you know. Um, I had to be like, wait a minute, when did he write this? Because if he wrote <laughs> this in 2015, I'd slap him on the wrist. <laughs> but he didn't. So 135. It's called Homecoming. So this is where they arrive in Levenshire to a very mixed greeting. And then Quoth goes off and visits the... Um, Physiker, the kind of the local uh, healer woman, and has a little bit of a moment. So Quoth is still dealing, you know, and even though he's, you know, says he never had any more dreams about Alec and he's he's moved past it, he's also still hasn't really processed those things. Well, and, and he's he's been in this situation <clears throat> for the last several days where he has had to kind of put on the brave face and be calm and be cool and be collected for the sake of these girls. You know, particularly for Ellie, who he he can't, he doesn't feel like he can be vulnerable and wounded in this situation. He has to be the parent, you know, in this scenario. And sometimes that's exhausting and it doesn't give you the, the time to process things. It doesn't give you a chance. Yeah. So they return to Levenshire. The women surround the girls and the men all surround Quoth. Yes. And I love this line. He says they surround him with the sort of anger that comes to a slow boil inside the hearts of good men who want justice and finding it out of their grasp. Decide vengeance is the next best thing. Yes. Yeah. And so we're talking a lot about vengeance in this section. We are. Well, we're talking a lot about vengeance in this section, but this section is also where we introduce the concept of anger as this component of everybody, but particularly of men that drives them to create and do all these wonderful things and to also do stupid, violent things as well. And to me, if you look at this section in a span of three pages, starting with when he gets approached by the men to when the mayor shows up. There's a three-page section, and in that section, he uses the word anger eight times. Wow. 
So eight different times he uses that. It's like every paragraph it shows up when he could have used many other words. So he's got a thesaurus. You know, he, he knows other words for anger. So to me, that was not coincidental. That was not just, you know, him deciding that anger was a better word than, you know, any other word he could have he could have found. He, he did that deliberately, I feel like, you know, as at a time when he's trying to kind of demonstrate what these men are, are, are doing. I think he's trying to prove Penthe and Vachette's point. Right. And so Kvothe realizes that these men are angry because they did try to rescue the girls and they weren't able to. And so really they're kind of angry at themselves at their own inability to protect their village and to protect their people. And it wasn't because they didn't try and it wasn't because they weren't good people. Right. And so eventually they, they don't end up pounding the hell out of both, even though for a second it looks like they're going to, and he does have to break Ellie's boyfriend's arm, but things settle down. Well, he didn't have, I mean, he kind of had to, he didn't have to. <laughs> well, it either way, it says he broke his arm before he realized what he was even doing. So in his exhausted state, in his kind of traumatized state, you know, this guy comes along and calls one of the rape victims a rue whore. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was, I mean, that was a moment of weakness on his point, which, by the way, Everybody who we would respect in this town, the mayor and Gran, who we'll meet later, were like, oh, yeah, he had it coming. Right. So, like, I don't... I don't. The best this... thing that could have happened to him. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, he had a big mouth. He got what was coming to him. I don't, I'm not upset with Quoth about it, but let's, let's call it what it was. That was a moment of weakness. So, Quoth goes to see the healer Gran, and he gets his piece of the moon. What? That he... A chapter or two before, he I says... I remember that, yeah. He says, I really could use a good physiker in this, but finding one in this part of the oh. country, I might as well wish for a piece of the moon. Wow, look And at so that. I thought, oh, that's... He gets his piece of the moon. I did not catch that. Yep. Um, and they go back and forth, and, and he asks her what she's using this herb and that herb, and he's like, you're not going to use arrowroot? And she's like arrowroot's useless and they you know then she gives him some tea and he asks what's in and she goes i don't know do you want me to put in some arrowroot for you and it's just a very charming exchange there you know quoth from the beginning or the middle of name of the wind would have argued with her and he doesn't he recognizes that she knows she might not have gone to the university but she knows more about what's going on right now than he does Indeed, and she knows what he needs, and she is able to maybe draw him out and help him to talk a little bit, which he yes, needed to do. Absolutely. So it's all this is all kind of a nice little interchange that he has, and then he heads off. And you know, in this section, we really see Quoth at his best. You know, not yeah, not only yeah. does he save these girls, bring them back, but he also makes sure that everyone knows where the wagons and, and horses and supplies that the troop left and makes sure that they understand that those belong to the girls now and they'll make a good dowry and does his best to make sure that they're going home to the best some sort of security. Si- yeah, the best possible situation he can arrange for them. And not only does he do that, but he leaves the last horse, which he was going to ride back to Severin for Bill, one of the men who broke his leg going out to try and rescue them. Well, so not only is he going to ride the horse back to Severin to try to get back to Severin more quickly, which, by the way, would have also helped his safety a great deal, having a horse. 
you know, if you're by yourself and you can get there quickly and spend less time on the road, you know, less likely that something's going to happen to you. So not only that, but also he was going to get to Severn and sell the horse, you know, and he would have made, you know, three or four talents out of that, which, you know, again, money is important to quote. So that's a big sacrifice that he made there. Indeed. So we see, really see the best of him here. He's really at his most self-sacrificing. Yeah, absolutely. There is one thing, one other thing that happened with Grand that I want to go back to. Yeah. Because I feel like there was a lot of foreshadowing in this chapter. Yes. So in addition to just kind of some good character moments here. And I loved when he kind of broke down with Grand because I think that's what you would probably do in a situation like that and how she is another one of these tertiary characters like the cobbler in Tarbian who pops up but is so well executed that they don't feel like these tertiary characters. They don't feel like one of the random A.S. Sedai who all look like all the other A.S. Sedai and act like all the other A.S. Sedai. These are all unique characters and how she's able to recognize what's going on with him and pull that out of him. And one of the things that she talks about is she says, you know, what would, what would happen if I told you that Bill or whatever his name is had the, the sourness on him, the, the stench, the rot, he, you know, and he was like, Oh no, we gotta, we gotta cut the leg off, you know? And she's like, yeah, you have that instinct. You have that ability. And she says, you save the mother and you lose the babe. It's hard and no one ever thanks you for it, but we're the ones who have to choose. And it's that greater good thinking. And, and I think that's a foreshadowing. Like to me, when I read that the first time, I was like, ding, ding, here's the foreshadowing bell, you know, and I'm thinking he's going to have to make some really hard for the greater good choice and maybe make a huge sacrifice is going to be one of the things that's going to define him in kind of that ultimate moment. Right, and we've seen Quoth in this relatively short arc in this time of him traveling go from being someone who couldn't defend himself when he was jumped in the street to being, uh, I don't want to say stone cold killer because he's not stone cold about it, but being someone who has survived many armed conflicts and killed a whole lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then we get to the, we get to the scene where we're in town and he's about to depart and leave. And he has, he pulls Crin aside and he says, Hey, you know, I split up the goods. You want to make sure you get this horse because you know, he, what he tells us, but doesn't tell her is that, you know, the mayor's daughter was going to be taken care of. You know, he put the more valuable things in her side to give her more of a fighting chance because she doesn't have, you know, the name behind it that the mayor's daughter does. And then they have a, a little moment and he says, don't sell yourself short and marry some <laughs> fool. And she turns, the one who looks like Denna uh-huh. turns and says, don't you either. <laughs> and I went, ding, 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 ding. Right? Dub- double foreshadowing bell. <laughs> the foreshadowing bell is on, <clears throat> is on overtime this week. You know, and I thought that's what's, that's what the whole Denna thing is about right there in that line that he's going to marry some 
fool when he shouldn't. Now, I don't mean that he's necessarily going to marry Denna, but he keeps hitching his wagon to her, and it's going to be part of his downfall. I mean, I think we kind of already know that. We absolutely know that, but it is, I, I definitely picked up on that line as well and enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, especially because she's the one who looks like Denna. Right. You know, and I thought, okay, just, you know, another another piece of evidence that it's this relationship with Denna that's probably going to cause him to turn to anger and is ultimately going to be what, what all this hinges around. So it's going to very much be a Shay and Tywin's bed sort of scenario. Mm. Perhaps. Perhaps. We'll find out. Do you have anything else? Not on this chapter, no. All right. Well, that wraps up our chapters, though, for the for the week. Yeah, I'm done. Got any predictions for me? So I think a couple there. So one, just what I said there. I think that we're going to have a Shay and Tywin sort of scenario with Denna. Or, uh, you know, jilted lover like Denna's going to end up with the Poet King, uh, you know, sort of scenario that's going to end up being some huge explosion. You know, so I feel like that's going to come to pass in some way. And then the other one is I think that he's going to go to uh, the mayor and I think everything's going to be completely fine. I don't think anything bad's going to happen at all. Oh, you're wincing. You don't oh, really think that, but I you're going to say it because you don't you're... really think that, but that's what I'm going to say. And then I think that it's going to be anger that drives Quoth to be the king killer. Again, it's not really a difficult prediction to make. All right. Nice predictions. Thank you. Those are my predictions. Yes, they are. All right. Do we have any interactions to talk about? Oh, we've got so many good interactions to talk about. Awesome. So many good interactions. So. Last week, we put out the riddle at the end of the episode, and we're going to get to that at the end, but we had a lot of people who kind of chimed in on that, Um, one of whom was uh, Jason Michael Cox, who said, I'm not good at riddles, but I sure love the episode. So Jason is at jbird underscore 531. So we thank you for that. And then um, Ian James Crone said, join me in Stitcher Hell. So we got into a long conversation about how, unfortunately, Stitcher doesn't get the episodes until like probably a good 24 hours after iTunes does. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, I I didn't either. I knew there was a delay, but I figured it was a couple of hours. I didn't think it was a full 24 hours. So he ended up being, you know, not even hearing the riddle or being in the contest until it was already decided, unfortunately. And then Ryan Fenwick, who is at... Fenny and the Jets. So instead of Benny and the Jets, Fenny and the Jets. Yeah, I see what you did there. You see, you see, you see. He said, just a quick thing about the word Rinta appearing elsewhere. Check out Name of the Wind the first time Quoth goes to the archives in chapter 36. And I haven't had a chance to do that yet. I'm excited. You don't recall that or? I don't. I will get back to you next week because I don't have the book in front of me right now. Ooh, okay. And then uh, Joe Hurst who is at HurstJoe86, says, oh, man, there's contests now? I really got to catch up. Yeah, and this was a fun contest, and I hope to be doing more in the future. Yeah, hopefully we'll get we'll get to do more stuff like that. Uh, I put up the SoundCloud clip that I always put up, and I said, the ADEM think that musicians are whores, but what if you're really, really good at it? And then uh, Weeb Trash, who is at Wolf 
Ein Pain, which is W-O-L-F-I-N-E-P-A-Y-N-E, said if the musician if musicians are whores, then quote has got to be an escort. He's a classy whore. He's a classy whore. He's the girlfriend experience. <laughs> Uh, Daryl Mansell at Sea Delicious said, don't think we didn't catch that IL slip in the last episode. <laughs> and then he said, trying to figure this riddle out. And then we had a question from Phyllis Hart, who is at Phi Hart. It's P-H-Y-H-A-R-T. And she says, have you not discussed the fact that there's no music in quotes present world? If you did, I missed it. And so we have discussed that, the idea that in coat at the Waystone Inn, he won't allow there to be right. musicians that he doesn't sing or anything. Right. And I asked her, I was like, is that what you mean? She's like, yeah. And the fact that he doesn't even hum, you know, and we have sort of addressed that. We haven't really addressed it. It's sort of always been in the context of other things. He does at one point sing oh, really? along with that. Tinker Tanner. Oh, you know? that's right. Yeah, yeah. And very early on, it's described as the group of men singing and that the innkeeper even surprise them with a verse that's right yeah that's right so i don't think there's anything tinfoily there as far as music has disappeared from the world or like he can't sing anymore i think it's just that it's traumatic for him and he doesn't choose to yeah i I agree with you i i think that's what's going on as well i think it's similar to the reasons why he did not sing or couldn't bear to be around music when he was in tarbian yeah exactly i think he's in a very similar mental state yeah. To what he was in in Tarbian. It's and, and what we saw when he was in Tarbian was similar to the way that Coat is now, where he just kind of seemed to lose his abilities to do all of these things. Yeah, exactly. Like he can't do sympathy anymore. Well, he could have done, although it was super elementary, he could have done basic sympathy when he was in Tarbian, but he didn't. Right. We had an interaction from Joe Hurst, who is at Hurst Joe 86 That's H-U-R-S-T. J-O-E-8-6, and he tagged somebody by the name of Reese Hannon 9, R-E-E-S-E-H-A-N-S-E-N-9, saying, hey, Reese, the D&D podcast is a good listen for your first name of the wind read. Listen along. It'll help you to contextualize. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's so awesome. Thank I love you. It. That's the kind of stuff that we love. People saying, hey, you. You're going to love this. So, yeah, we were very, very happy about that. And then Reese responded back and said, I'll check it out. We have 27 episodes later, you'll hear this, Reese. <laughs> exactly. Hello. So stick with it. Are you in Chile? <laughs> <laughs> so, and then Joe uh, actually just sent a question here um, while we were actually recording the podcast. And said, we noticed your podcast isn't on Spotify. Is there some barrier to getting it on there? Um, If not, you should add it food for thought. Uh, There actually is a barrier to adding it. And the barrier is that Spotify is just incredibly picky about who they allow on there. So if you don't have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of listeners, you're not going to get on Spotify. So get us more listeners, you guys. So yeah, so pimp us out, yo. We need we need to do more work. So yeah, we would we would love to be on Spotify. I want to be on every platform I can get on. There are some platforms we had somebody reach out to us, and I won't say that say the name because these people reached out to us and said, "Hey, put your podcast on our service." 
but it was a bear to do. They made it a, a very difficult process to do it. So And we're lazy. Yeah, so we're not doing that. Super lazy. And in the case of Spotify, you know, like Spotify is looking to put on their like, you know, the NPR shows and Serial and the Joe Rogan podcast, which has millions and millions of listeners. They're not looking, you know, to be like iTunes, to be this. They're not looking to be this exhaustive index of all podcasts. They're very much gatekeepers, and that's kind of what they see themselves as being. So For now. Yeah, give it time. We'll get on there. Coming for you, Spotify. <laughs> Can't hold the Duke and Duchess back. <laughs> All right, so we have four children with wooden swords. We will sick them upon you. <laughs> I will look up where the headquarters for Spotify is. If it's it too, says over the line, Duke, over the line. If it's too far of a drive, we're not coming because because <laughs> driving with four kids with swords is crazy. It is crazy. You're not doing. We're not going more than an hour away. So, so we said all will be revealed. Oh, yes. Reveal it. Reveal it. Okay. So we we had this contest. We put the riddle out there, and whoever was the first to be able to give us the answer to the riddle through a DM, we were going to give a a wonderful Duke and Duchess prize package, which consists of a t-shirt, to that listener. And um, also, they would obviously be the first to know kind of what we were going to do next. And so, the winner of the contest is Adam at LFC Adam eighty eight one eight five. Yay! And he correctly guessed that the next book that we are going to cover is the Lies of Locke Lamora. Woohoo! That's right. So we're not committing to reading the entire Gentleman Bastard series, though we probably will. It'll be hard to stop once you get going. So, yeah, I have a feeling. And this is, I'm excited about this because this is one of like all the books you bring to me and you're like, oh, you got to read this book. Oh, this book series is great. This is the one that I've wanted to read the most. Well, and I have wanted, I mean, for years. And these are the two series that I always recommend back to back is king killer chronicles and the gentleman bastards and i'm excited to read them bad to back to back i just sort of happened to do it that way gentleman bastards was the the series that i picked up after king killer Mm. however there are a lot of really interesting parallels between the two main characters and scott lynch's main character Locke lamora he's got a clothy feel to him it's not the same character and he's well developed in his own right but there it's hard to not compare the two well we will you know, yeah, it's it's just going to be really interesting to yeah. uh, follow up with that. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Like I said, this is one I've wanted to read for a while. I don't know, what, like particularly why I was more interested in that than I was the King Killer Chronicles um, or the King Killer Chronicle, but that's that's been the one uh, that you've recommended that I've wanted to read the most. Well, I can't so wait for you to read it. It's um, it's it's great. It's a great book. A lot of snappy dialogue. Very funny. One of the other things that counts for it, I mean, we had a lot of options. You know, we had to ultimately make a decision amongst a lot of good candidates. There was a lot of books we could have potentially chosen, but we chose this one. One of the things that goes for it is that 
it's the last book's not out yet, but it's coming out in like a matter of weeks. Right. So even if it gets delayed, by the time we get around to reading, you know, by the time we're ready for the fourth book, it'll be out. So we won't have to like the, you know, like the King Killer Chronicle or like A Song of Ice and Fire, we won't have to wait three years to wrap it up and figure out what's going to happen. So that's exciting. It's also nice that it kind of keeps the same dynamic that we have here where you have read them and I haven't. Yeah, I agree. Because I think that dynamic is working for us. Yeah, and I think um, everyone should look out for uh, some one-off episodes we have planned as well. We plan to be doing those throughout the series um we have plans to talk about ready player one at some point i think yeah and i think we'll probably want to do that one fairly soon because the movie's you know not too far from coming out so but that'll probably be a, a one and done thing because that's not a, a terribly terribly that's not deep a book book that lends itself to doing the chapter by chapter reread sort of fashion that we're doing i don't i don't feel like it does Right, but I, I, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it though because that's one of my favorite new reads. Um, yeah, and, and a couple others. So yeah, we've got a few other one-offs that more we do. will be revealed. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm excited about it. That that's the big reveal. I'm excited about what we're reading next. I'm excited about wrapping up uh, the Wise Man's Fear. We're only two weeks away from wrapping that up, and uh, yeah, all good stuff. Uh, do you have anything else for us? I don't. Let's wrap it up. <laughs> good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>